just down in, in uh, Yucca Valley uh, teaching a week-long retreat with James Barres and Anna and uh, Sharda and Bob Stahl. And we were teaching on the, we were teaching on the heavenly messengers. On you know the story of the heavenly messengers, yeah. So we were teaching on being with illness, being with aging, being with dying, yeah, becoming up close and personal with it, yeah. So I thought tonight I would um, speak a little bit around this area. I'm going to reference my work with dying folks, but my hope is that while I'll speak a bit about being with dying. My hope is that it has relevance and application for the rest of our lives, yeah? Not just for being with dying people, yeah? So one of the things that I, that I feel strongly about, about being with dying folks, is that um, it is ultimately a sacred act, dying, yeah? It's not treated that way in our culture, but it is. And the sacred... It's not something separate or different from other things, but rather it's hidden in all things. Yeah? And so dying is a time of uncovering. It's a time when the sacred gets exposed, we could say. Yeah? Like um, one day I was, when I was working at Zen Hospice, we had a unit at Laguna Honda Hospital. It's a very large hospital. It's the nation's largest long-term care facility. It has 1,100 beds in it. Yeah? And most of the people in it are very poor. Only 1% of the population has insurance. And so if you're poor and old or dying, this is where you go in San Francisco. Yeah? And it's an, it's an old-style hospital with open wards of 30 or 40 people in one room. Yeah? And when I first was invited to start a hospice there, I thought, oh no, we should close this place down. And then walking through the wards, I thought, oh, where would the Buddha go, you know? Where would the Buddha go if he were here? So we, we began a hospice unit in the basement and back of the hospital. So one day I'm walking through our hospice unit, it's 40 beds, like a gauntlet of beds, you know? And I'm walking down the, the aisle, and there's an older African-American man who's breathing with great difficulty. So I went over and I sat beside his bed, you know, and he was every in-breath struggle, every out-breath struggle, you know. And clearly he was actively dying. So I sat down next to him and um, I said to him, you look like you're working really hard. And he said, yeah, just got to get there. And he pointed like that. And I said, oh, I said, uh, if I promise to keep up, can I, can I go? And he said, yeah, and he grabbed my hand. Yeah. So I said to him, I, I forgot my glasses. I didn't bring my glasses. I can't see there into the distance. Can you see? And he described for me a sloping hillside to a kind of plateau. I said, you want to go? Yeah. Okay, so up we walked up this hill together. He was squeezing my hands, you know, breathing with great difficulty. He was really perspiring and breathing with great difficulty, you know. It was a hard walk up that hill. And when we got to the top of the hill, I said, can you see there further in the distance? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I can't see. Describe it to me. And so, kind of breathlessly, he described for me this little one-room red schoolhouse with three steps and a door. This man had been raised in Mississippi, you know, where such schoolhouses were normal for him as a child. Yeah. So... Um, 
we walked toward this little red schoolhouse. Now, I could have said to him at this point, you're disoriented times three. This is a result of the morphine and the brain metastasis. And you're in Laguna Honda Hospital. Let me help reorient you to time and space. That's what medicine would have us do. But that isn't what's true. What was true is we were walking to a little red schoolhouse. Yeah? I said, there's the steps. You want to go up? Yeah. Yeah. I said, there's the door. You want to go in? Yeah. I said, can I go? Because I always ask permission, you know. He said, no. I said, okay, then, then you go. It's okay. And a few minutes later, he died uh, very peacefully. Yeah? To see the sacred is not about seeing something new. It's about seeing things in a new way. Yeah? So the sacred isn't something separate or different than everything else in our life. It's, it's hidden in our life, in the ordinary things of our life. Yeah? Everybody's got an image of what happens to them after they die. Everybody has this. And for him, it was a little red schoolhouse. Yeah? Ongoing learning. Yeah? So I think that what happens, can happen in the dying process when people are well accompanied is that um, the obscurations, the, the perceptions, the beliefs that have been blocking or obscuring our capacity to see what's true, the truth of what's here, um, are lifted in a way. They're, they're, they dissolve in a way. So dying can be a time of growth and transformation. Extraordinary time, actually. But in this culture and in our healthcare system, it's often viewed as making the best of a bad situation. Yeah? And so uh, people oftentimes are not accompanied in a way that's most supportive. Um, I, I want to make a stake in the ground. Yeah? And say that dying is not predominantly a medical event. We need to bring the best of what medicine has to offer, of course. But it's not predominantly a medical event. It's more, uh, an event. it's more about relationships. It's about our relationship with the people we love, our relationship with the process of dying itself, with ourself, with God, or Buddha nature, or however we might name the ultimate kindness in our life. Yeah. And so much of the work of accompanying people is supporting the, or developing that relationship. I think the relationship is characterized by a few things. You know, when I'm dying, I want somebody with me who knows stuff. Yeah? I want somebody who has a high degree of mastery, somebody who can, in fact, manage my pain and address the symptoms, the distressing symptoms that might be associated with that process. I want mastery, yeah? But mastery won't be enough. It just won't be enough. So I need somebody also who's comfortable in the territory of meaning, yeah, meaning. Somebody who can help me discover what's the purpose and value of my life, yeah? What's the purpose and value of this dying process I'm in? So I need somebody who's comfortable in the territory of meaning. Yeah? But that won't be enough. 
Because if anybody in the room here has ever been around someone who's dying, you know that at some point, meaning falls away completely. And, you know, we're still there saying to Grandma, remember you used to like to go to Coney Island? and Remember the music you liked? And Grandma's past that now. And she's in another territory. She's in a territory of mystery. That's an entirely different place. So we need to be comfortable. We have to have some level of mastery. We need to be comfortable with meaning, comfortable in that territory. But also, we, not, we have to be comfortable in the territory of mystery. And this is the land of unanswerable questions. Yeah? This is the land where we help someone to discover the truth of their life, even if it's one we don't agree with. Yeah? So mastery, meaning, mystery. Now, I mentioned to you that um, some years ago I helped to start, a, or I created a program called the Zen Hospice Project. It's still going, it's beautiful, going beautifully in San Francisco, isn't it? She's a volunteer, so I can check with her. And, um, and we didn't really know what we were doing, to be honest with you, when we created it. We didn't know. We just thought there was a natural match between people who were cultivating what we might call the listening mind or the listening heart, what we're doing here tonight, and people who needed to be heard at least once in their life. Yeah? Dying folks. And in the beginning, at least, we took care of mostly indigent um, dying folks, people who lived on the streets and in single-room occupancy hotels. And I used to change a lot of diapers on park benches behind City Hall. Yeah? And the people I worked with, they, um, they lived on the margins of society. And they didn't trust easily. You know? And so if I was going to be of any use to them, I had to be pretty clear about my intention, and I had to have some integrity about what I was saying and doing. Yeah? Otherwise, they would sniff out my sentimentality and my insincerity. Yeah? So along the way, we, we developed these five precepts. You know how in Buddhist practice, when we go to do a retreat, we have five training precepts? You know, Not harming things, not stealing, you know, these precepts. We, we always announce, we always take them as vows at the beginning of retreat. Well, I thought, well, what would be the precepts that would guide us in our work with dying people? You know, what would help us to understand what would be useful there, you know? One of the ways I understand precepts, and maybe it's something that you share, is that precepts aren't just slogans, you know? They're, they're vows. They're, they're teachings that we live into in order to understand. Yeah? We can't just say them, we have to live into them. And so what's, what's extraordinary about precepts, like the training precepts we have on retreat, is that they're bottomless. We can always keep learning new things about them. Yeah? We can always discover something else about non-harming, can't we? And so it's true with the, these precepts of service or precepts of caring for folks who are dying. So I thought I'd share them with you, and we'll talk about them a little bit, and then we can look and see maybe how they apply to all of our lives, you know, our everyday lives, yeah? Even if we're not dying, yeah? But you are dying. <laughs> Just to remind you of that. You know? it's, not, it's not an if. It's not an if. It's going to happen, yeah? Right. So these precepts, um, let me describe them to you and share a little bit about them. The first one I made up, I thought, 
okay, what's what's first thing on top of the list? And I the list the first one is welcome everything, push away nothing. Yeah? That's a bottomless precept. Yeah. Welcome everything, push away nothing. Okay, it sounds good. It would make a really good bumper sticker, right? But how do we do that? Right? How do we live into that? Welcome everything, push away nothing. To welcome things doesn't mean we have to like them. Doesn't mean we have to agree with them. Just means we have to welcome them. We have to be willing to meet them, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and so it asks of us something, something like a kind of fearless receptivity. Yeah. And fearless doesn't mean that we don't have fear. It means that we understand that fear is not the only thing in the room. Right? If we know we're afraid, that means some part of us knows that. Right? And that part's not afraid. Right? That's fearlessness. A willingness to meet fear is fearlessness. So, this, this caring for people, it's a process of, for me at least, a continuous discovery in which we're always entering into new territory and we have no idea how it's going to turn out. We have no idea how it's going to turn out. And so it asks us to open and to take risks and to forgive constantly. This is welcoming everything, pushing away nothing. And you can hear under this, welcoming is love, isn't there? Because that's the only thing that can welcome everything. Yeah? It's love. This soft front we talked about in the meditation practice. Because yeah? love, you know, it just embraces whatever it comes into contact with. You know, you think about your partners in life, you know. You know, you might think they're really gorgeous, you know. But you know, they're going to get old too, right? If they haven't already. And, and you look at them and you think, hmm, he's a little bald, you know, kind of short. But I love him anyway, you know. And that's how it is with love. It just embraces whatever it comes into contact with. So, um, one time I was uh, called to San Francisco General Hospital to the psychiatric unit there, um, because there was a man there who was being referred to our hospice who had um, tried to take his life. Yeah? He attempted suicide, and the reason that he attempted suicide was that he had terminal lung cancer, and he couldn't imagine a future of any dignity or uh, usefulness. And so he wound up in the psychiatric unit. And I went to see him, and if you've ever been to a psychiatric unit, you know they're quite barren places sometimes. And he was in his bed, sort of turned toward the wall, you know. And I went in, I pulled up my chair, and I, I just sat beside him, yeah. And, and sat for a while, and a while longer. And, and then finally he sort of turned his head over there, and he said, who, who are you, he said. He said, nobody's ever sat this long with me in silence in this room. And I said, well, I get lots of practice at sitting in silence. I said, um, what do you want? And he, he looked at me like, kind of perplexed, you know. What do you want, I asked him. And he just looked at me straight in the eye and he said, spaghetti. <laughs> and I said, well, we make really good spaghetti at our hospice. Why don't you come and stay with us, live with us? And he said, okay. And that was the end of the admissions interview. Yeah. 
and the next day, uh, he came to the hospice, you know. Was we had a beautiful home, a Victorian home, in which we had six beds. And we also had the place at Laguna Honda I told you about. Anyway, he came to the six-bed house, and the day he arrived, we had a big bowl of spaghetti waiting for him. Because, you know, spaghetti, it meant home and nurturance and, uh, and familiarity, yeah? Yeah. Now, he stayed with us for three months, and he didn't stop wanting to kill himself just because we gave him spaghetti. It was good spaghetti, but it wasn't that good. <laughs> In fact, at the time, he, this was many years ago, Derek Humphreys had written a book called Final Exit, and it was about how to take your life if you have terminal illness. This was long before the um, laws in Oregon and elsewhere that had been changed. And so he wanted this book, and so I got this book, and I read him a chapter every night. Yeah. Welcome everything, push away nothing. Sometimes we have to go to the darkest places to find out what really heals. Yeah. So we'd read this chapter, every night I'd read a chapter, you know, and we'd talk about it. And in the end, he, he didn't take his life. In fact, shortly before he died, he said to me, he said, Frank, I want to thank you. He said, I'm happier now than I've ever been in my life. And I said, oh, bullshit. <laughs> I said, just a few weeks ago, you wanted to kill yourself because you couldn't walk in the park and write in your diaries. What was that all about? This is a man, by the way, who'd come off the streets of San Francisco. And he said, oh, that. He said, that was just chasing desire. That was his, he's not a Buddhist practitioner. That was just chasing desire, he said. I said, what do you mean? You mean these activities aren't important to you anymore? He said, oh, no, no, it's not the activities that are important, he said. He said, it's the attention to the activities. He said, now my pleasure comes from the coolness of the breeze and the softness of the sheets. I thought that was a remarkable turnaround for a guy I met in a psychiatric unit. Huh? Now, we never taught him to meditate. We didn't teach him any Buddhism, you know. We just welcomed him. And we welcomed every part of him, yeah, all of him. This man's name, I can tell you his name. His name was Diodani Benvenuto. And it means, welcome this gift from God. That was his name, beautiful. <laughs> so there's a deeper dimension to this precept. It's not just about, you know, learning to welcome changing conditions or moving beyond our preferences. That's not all it's about. It's pointing us to something deeper, really. First, we have to ask, who is it that's going to welcome everything and push away nothing? Who's going to do that? Not little old me, you know? Not my little old separate sense of self. That's going to get overwhelmed by the things I meet. Yeah? So I have to find some part of me that can indeed welcome. I have to find... something beyond my separate self. You know, because from the perspective of my separate self, all I've got to offer the situation is my history. And my history is useful, but all it's going to let me do is repeat what I've already done before. So I have to find something fresh and alive. Yeah? The beautiful thing about awareness, as we were talking about in the meditation practice, is that it doesn't need to push anything away. You know, I've got this character in me, I, I call him my inner excluder. He, he likes to make gated communities. Yeah? <laughs> Do you have one of those? Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, so awareness includes all of it. <coughs> Welcomes all of it. When I'm resting in awareness, there's a sense of expansiveness. 
a sense of capacity, a sense of boundlessness. You know, whatever we give space to can move. That's a really good thing to remember. Whatever we give space to in our bodies, our hearts, our minds, can move. It can show itself to us. It can unravel. It can unfold and reveal itself to us. So to welcome everything and push away nothing is to, is to discover that. Yeah? Okay. Second precept. You ready? Second precept. Bring your whole self to the experience. Bring your whole self to the experience. You know, lots of times when we're taking care of people, we imagine it's our expertise that will help, our strength that will help, you know. And that's true, it does. But that's not enough. We have to also bring our fear and our helplessness and our confusion. Because the people we're working with, they're experiencing all those things, you know. And so if, if we know these things, if we've done our homework, if we've gotten familiar with our fear, gotten familiar with our helplessness, then we can build an empathetic bridge to the other person. Yeah? It doesn't have to be the exact same experience. We can reach into our experience and find something that touches theirs. Yeah? Yeah. Some years ago, many years ago now, I took care of a very dear friend of mine. His name was John. and He was a practitioner here at Spirit Rock. Very dear man. I loved him very much. And he was dying of AIDS. And uh, there were a group of us who took care of him. Three of the people who took care of him have since died. And I was the fourth. Yeah. He was an extraordinary guy, John. Anyway, uh, this was my day to take care of him. And this one day, he woke up. And this strange neurological phenomenon that had happened for him. And in one morning, he lost his ability to stand or to hold a fork or to speak in an intelligent word. This all happened in one morning. Yeah? My morning to take care of him. Yeah? And I remember getting him up and sitting him at the kitchen table, which was always chaotic in John's house. It was always a mess. And I just looked across the table at him and I thought, Where's my friend gone? You know, he was just there last night. Where'd he go? <laughs> I, I took care of him all that day, and it was really hard. It was really hard. I was exhausted, and, and I have to say, I'm really embarrassed to say, but it's true. I, 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 I was very paternalistic with him. I treated him like he was an infant sometimes. John had these uh, anal fistulas, like tumors, and he had uh, constant diarrhea. And so taking care of him was a lot of work, you know. We'd, we'd sit on the toilet, and I'd move him to the bath and back to the toilet again, like dozens of times in a day. And, And, you know, this long day stretched into the night and night into the early hours of the morning. And I was so tired, you know. I was so tired. I just really wanted him to go to sleep and to wake up in the morning and somehow have this nightmare be over, you know. <laughs> and uh, I remember I was washing my hands at the sink 
and there was a vanity, you know, above the sink, you know, with a mirror. And, and behind me, John was sitting on the toilet. You know. And I looked in the mirror, and I could see John mouthing to me, like trying to speak to me, whispering to me. And he was saying, you're trying too hard. <laughs> hmm. <coughs> I was. I was trying much too hard. Trying too hard to be somebody, you know. Me, Mr. Hospice, yeah. Me, somebody who knew what they were doing, the expert, yeah. And I stopped, you know, and I I sat down beside the toilet and I just cried. I just cried and he cried. We cried together. There we were, completely helpless together. Yeah, completely helpless. You see, I was afraid to be helpless before that. I thought I had to be the strong one, yeah, the knowing one. But now here we were, sitting beside the toilet, shit everywhere, <laughs> completely helpless together. And in that moment, you know, it was the most intimate moment of our whole friendship. Because in this moment, there wasn't so much separation between us. Then we were together, you know. And we didn't, we didn't stay there helpless forever. The situation showed us what to do next, but we couldn't have known that until we were willing to be helpless. Do you see? Yeah. So to bring your whole self to the experience means to bring all of it. No part left out. Every part included, yeah? Because you don't know what's going to be a meeting place with the other person. So there's a deeper understanding of this precept, yeah? And it's orienting us, really, toward our Buddha nature, toward our basic nature, our basic goodness, we could say, yeah? We're so much more than our thoughts and our history and our emotions. You know what's amazing to me? What's amazing to me is not that we can expand boundlessly. That's fun and it's extraordinary when it happens, right? That's not what's amazing to me. What's amazing to me is that we can take all of what we are and scrunch it down into such a small sense of self. That's amazing. Yeah? Such a little tiny story about who we are. That's amazing. Third precept, don't wait. You know that one? They still teach that at Zen Hospice, don't they? Oh, good. Don't wait. Waiting is full of expectation. Right? Waiting for the next moment to arrive. We miss this one. How many times have I been with families who have said to me, when is mom going to die? When is dad going to die? Waiting for the moment of dying, we miss all the moments in between. Yeah? Don't wait. If there's someone you love, tell them you love them. Don't wait. Yeah. This friend of mine, Larry, he was on our board. and He called me one day and he said, my mother is, uh, is dying, you know. And um, the doctor said she's going to die soon. And, and 
It could be days or a couple of weeks, but she's going soon. And I don't know, what should I do? When should I go? She lived in Toronto, he lived in San Francisco. This is like a lot of us. Our families are living very far from us. And when do we go? What do we do? You know? He didn't know what to do. I said, I don't know. Come on over. We'll talk about it. You know? So he came over and we visited. And I asked him about his, what the doctors had said. And I asked him about his mom. And he started to talk to me about his mom. You know? And I noticed that as he talked, his, the color in his cheeks changed. Yeah? And I noticed that his, his chin was quivering just a little bit as he spoke about his mom. Yeah? And I said, um, I think you should go tonight. And he said, oh, I can't. I have business tomorrow and things that have, takes me a few days. And I said, no, no, go tonight. He said, really? I said, yeah, take the red eye. Go. And uh, he said, okay. You know. So he took the red eye and he flew back to Toronto. You know? And he got there at 10 in the morning. And he went to his mom's uh, nursing home where she was and sat beside her bed and there he was, at one o'clock in the afternoon, when his mother died, he was right there with her. Yeah. Don't wait. Don't wait. Don't wait until you're dying to find out what it has to teach. I mean, to imagine somehow that we will have the strength of body, the, the emotional stability, the mental clarity, at that time, is an absurd gamble. It's a ludicrous gamble to wait until that time to see what dying has to teach. Yeah? And to, to be with people in the way that we most want to be with them. Yeah? Don't wait. Yeah. So this precept is also pointing us to a deeper dimension of our practice, really. And it's, uh, it's reminding us that the only place we can be of service, really, is in this moment. Not in the future, not in the past, just now. And it's really, it's, it's orienting us, in a way, to the experience that some of us have in deeper states of meditation. You know, when, when the mind settles, when the body settles, and we have this experience of simultaneous arising, where time falls away. There's just this moment, yeah? And, and there's an immediacy to life. That's what the precept is orienting us to, the immediacy of our life. The immediacy of being a living presence. Yeah. Okay. The fourth precept. I wrote these on an airplane, by the way. I was going, I'll tell you the story, I was going, Bill um, Moyers was a friend and, and, and he was creating a program uh, called On Our Own Terms. It, it aired a few years ago. Six-hour series on um, dying in America. And Bill, he created what he called a teach-in. And he asked a number of us that we'd come back and work with his staff, his you know, hard-nosed journalists and camera people and producers, and if we could, uh, we could go back and talk to them. So on the plane, I thought, well, i got to say something, you know? <laughs> and so I, I, I wrote down these five precepts. That's where they came, on the airplane. I thought, I have to just write, I know there's going to be some silver-tongued devils there, you know, who, who are going to, who are famous, there were lots of famous people there, I wasn't. 
And I thought, I'm going to have just a few minutes, so I better be able to say them, reduce them to something digestible. So, so the fourth precept. Fourth precept is, find a place of rest in the middle of things. Yeah? We think about rest as something we'll do later, like when we go on holiday, or when we go on retreat, maybe, or, or when our list gets checked off. I don't know about you, but my list never gets checked off. I mean, really, does it ever? So if I wait for that to rest, I'm in trouble. Yeah, I'll never rest. It's like waiting for your inbox to be empty. You know? It's not going to happen. So I have to learn to find rest right in the middle of what I'm doing. And you know how that is, right? When you, when you bring your attention fully and completely to whatever it is you're doing. It could be meditating, or it could be reading a book, or watching a film, or being with your granddaughter. You know, when you're fully and completely there, it's actually quite restful. Yeah? When our attention isn't scattered, when we're not living under the illusion that multitasking actually gets more things done. We're just here, just now. Yeah. Find a place of rest in the middle of things. There was uh, this woman at our house. We called the hospice the guest house because we thought the people who came were our guests. And, and at the guest house, there was this kind of feisty old broad. I'll call her an old broad. Excuse me for using that language. But she was that. She was a very tough Russian Jewish lady, 86 years old. And she was dying of cancer. And, and, and she'd been with us for a couple of months. And we, we, she and I got to be quite close. Her name was Adele. And she was feisty, really feisty. And um, when someone was dying at the guest house, they, uh, staff would call me and I would come and I would often be with people. So well, I got to be with maybe a thousand people who died, you know. And this one night I went in to be with Adele and um, I walked in the room and um, this attendant, Pat, was sitting with her, wonderful woman, great, one of our staff. And uh, so Pat was taking good care of her. So I just went and I sat in the corner. That's my way. Go sit in the corner. Find out. Sit on the couch in the corner of the room. Find out if anything really is necessary, if you really need it, before you jump in to help. Yeah? So sitting there in the corner, I watched. And Pat very kindly was with Adele, you know, and she put her arm around Adele and she said, Adele, you know, we're right here with you. We're right here with you. You don't have to be frightened, you know. And Adele, who was this feisty gal, she, she turned to Pat and she looked at her and she said, Honey, if this was happening to you, you'd be frightened. <laughs> Just like that, pow, you know. Boom, like a Zen master, you know. No nonsense, right? No nonsense. And so I stayed in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She scared me a little. And then uh, a little while later, Pat very kindly said to her, you look a little cold, because she was shivering a little bit. She looked a little cold. Would you like a blanket, you know, around your shoulders? And Adele shot back. She said, of course I'm cold. I'm almost dead. <laughs> right? Wow. I mean, I hope I have half of the tenacity of this woman when I'm dying. Amazing, amazing character. So, so sitting there in the corner, I, I noticed a couple of things. One is, you know, Adele was sitting there on the edge of the bed with her dressing gown and Pat next to her, and she was breathing with great difficulty. 
you know, she was coming close to the end of her life. And th those of you who have been around that know that oftentimes there's different breathing rhythms. The nurses in the room will remind you it's called chain-stoke breathing. And, and what it means is that the breath will have erratic patterns to it. Maybe long in-breaths or short in-breaths, long out-breaths or short out-breaths. Or the breath speeds up. And so there was a struggle with the breath. There was a labor with the breath. Just, there's a labor to dying, like there's a labor to getting born. It's not wrong. There's a labor to dying. It's hard work sometimes. Yeah? And if you say to someone, just let go, they're going to say to you, you just let go. You think it's so easy. <laughs> so here was Adele laboring with the breath, really. And I noticed that. And then I noticed that with her exchanges with Pat, she didn't want any nonsense. She didn't want to talk about tunnels of light or bardos or you know, any of this. She just wanted honest relationship, authentic relationship, real. She wanted somebody to be real with her. Yeah? And we knew each other, so I could be pretty honest with her. So I pulled up my chair in front of her, and I, I said, Adele, I said, I noticed, you know, when you were breathing, there was a lot of struggle. Would you like to struggle a little less? That's all I said to her. And she said, yes. I said, okay, okay. So I noticed something. I noticed, as I was watching you, I noticed that at the very end of the exhale, there was this little gap. You know that gap? You, you find it in meditation a lot, huh? That pause at the end of the exhale. And I said, I wonder what it would be like, Adela, if for a few moments you could place your attention just in that gap. Now remember, this is a Russian Jewish lady, 86 years old, doesn't care beans about Buddhism or meditation, none of that. But she's highly motivated in this moment to be free of suffering. And that's what gets most of us to sit down in meditation, isn't it? Yeah. So I said, would you like to suffer less? She said, yes. I said, okay. I said, I'll do it with you. And so... She would breathe in, I would breathe in, she would breathe out, I would breathe out. I didn't guide her, didn't try and create some special kind of breathing, nothing like that. I just accompanied her. Yeah? So there we were, breathing together, breathing together. And maybe once in a while I would remind her to just watch the exhale, you know. And she would. And I noticed that when that happened, she, our attention got drawn into the, that gap at the end of the exhale. And I noticed as that happened, the fear in her face just washed away. Just washed away. And we were breathing like that for a little while. And then she wanted to lean back on her pillow and lay back on her pillow. And a few minutes later, she died very peacefully. Yeah. I think Adele found the place of rest in the middle of things. You understand? Like all the conditions were the same. Nothing had changed. She was still dying. There was still, you know, difficulty breathing. We had the right interventions with oxygen and morphine, etc. So the conditions hadn't really changed. But she found a place right in the middle of all that chaos to rest. Yeah? So she found it there in the gap at the end of the exhale. Where do you find it? Yeah? In the middle of your day, where do you find the place of rest in the middle of things? I had a heart attack a few years ago, which resulted in triple bypass surgery. It was a very big deal, you know, very humbling, really humbling. And I was at home convalescing, you know, for months. And it was hard, you know, being sick is hard. You know, any of you who've been sick, you know that, you know, it's hard work. 
And uh, I, I had sleepless nights, and I would have these difficult dreams. And I had a lot of pain, a lot of physical pain. And this one night I woke up from this fitful dream and I heard myself say out loud to myself, find a place of rest in the middle of things. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I have to take my own advice, you know. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to try and rest. Now, trying to rest is not resting. <laughs> trying to rest, right, is efforting. And efforting is good for certain things, you know, it helps us to pack our bags and, you know, check them on an airplane. But when we're trying to discover who we are, when we're trying to find our basic nature, that sort of efforting is not very useful. Yeah? So we have to find a way of resting without striving, without seeking so much. Yeah? That's, what, that's the deeper dimension of this precept. Okay, last one, last precept. Last precept is... Um, what's the last precept? Yeah? You know, okay, you got to go back and study some more. Last precept is, cultivate don't know mind. I felt obliged to put something Zen-like in this list. So in Zen, you know, we say, cultivate don't know mind. And it means, um, it doesn't mean to be ignorant. It means to cultivate a mind that's open and full of wonder, actually, and curiosity. A don't know mind is not so filled with knowing that it's so filled up that it has no room for anything else. Yeah? Where there's a corollary teaching in Zen that says, not knowing is most intimate. Not knowing is most intimate. So it means that when we don't know something, we have to stay very close to it, very close to it to know it. Yeah? So, it so it's about cultivating a certain kind of intimacy. And this not knowing, it's not exactly ordinary ignorance, and it's not some special thing. It, it, it's off the charts of all that. Not knowing is different than all of that. Yeah. Hmm. Um, you know, Suzuki Roshi, one of my beloved teachers at Zen Center, he, he used to speak of that famous thing, the beginner's mind. Remember that? Where he talks about, you know, in the expert's mind, there are a few possibilities, and in the, in, the, in the beginner's mind, there are endless possibilities. Yeah, that's, that's not don't know mind. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I just thought of this actually. Uh, several years ago now, my brother died. He was uh, uh, he had a tough life. He was a street alcoholic, a longtime drug user. He used to live at racetracks, yeah, in the in the hayloft above the horses. Yeah. And once in a while he'd pull it together and he would get, um, he went back to school for a while, he became a social worker, and then he'd fall off the wagon again, and he'd pull it together and he got married one time, and, and in, even had a child. And uh, with this time he'd fallen off the wagon, he'd just come out of a halfway house and he came home. And he was at his house with his five-year-old daughter, yeah, and... Um, and that night, he had a heart attack and died. And his five-year-old daughter found him. Yeah. And she called 911, yeah, five years old. And so my older brother, he called me to tell me that my younger brother had died. And, and I was in shock. Even though I knew it was coming, I was in shock. And I said to him, uh, okay, I'll be there tomorrow. Um, 
ask the funeral people if I can just be with his body. Yeah. And my brother said to me, why would you want to do that? And I said, oh, it's just a California thing. You know? <laughs> so I went to the funeral home, and, um, and uh, they ruled out my brother on this gurney. He hadn't been touched, really. And I thought, I can just sit with my brother. You know, that's what I really want to do. Just sit with him. And uh, so I pulled the sheet down off his face. And I just sat with my brother. And... Uh, in the quiet, and then into the room burst his former wife, who was also a long-time drug user, speed, speed mostly. And she was out of her mind on speed. And she came in and she was pulling at the sheets and asking, why has he got a tag on his toe? I don't know why he's got a tag on his toe. Where's glasses? He used to have glasses. I don't see his glasses. Where's glasses? He should have glasses. What, there's a nick on his face. Did they shave him? I don't know. What, maybe we should shave him. I don't know what to do. How did he die anyway? I don't know how he died. And it went like this, really, like this non-stop. And to be honest, I was very angry. I was really angry, you know. I just wanted to be with my brother. And then I remembered, welcome everything, push away nothing, huh? So I stood up and I came next to her and listened, you know, and asked and answered some questions and time went on. And after a while she left. And I thought, okay, I'll just sit down with my brother again. And I sat down in a chair, and the funeral director came in and said, I'm sorry, we have to close. And that was it. That was all the time I got to have with him. Yeah. And the next day, we cremated him. I remember pushing the button in the crematorium. And we had a little kind of a memorial. Uh, my other brothers, two other brothers, and his daughter, and uh, a few friends from his AA group. And and my brothers said, well, you, you know how to talk. You say something, you know. <laughs> and I thought, what am I going to say? How do I say anything? Don't know mine. Yeah. And I was just standing there, and I thought, well, maybe I could say something about forgiveness. I don't know. And, and then right in the middle of this, his five-year-old daughter stood up on a chair so she could be at the same level as me. And she just looked me straight in the eye. And she said, why did my daddy die? Now you can't, you can only tell the truth there. You can only tell the truth. And what's the truth? Truth is, I don't know. I don't know. I said to her, I don't know. I said, but you know, if we listen really closely in our hearts, you know, maybe one day we'll, we'll hear him tell us, you know, we'll, we'll learn. You know? And uh, she grabbed her by the hand. I said, you want to help me? And I had his ashes, and we were going to scatter them around this cherry tree. She didn't know what his ashes were at five years old. She didn't know that. But she wanted to do it with me anyway. So we did it together. We walked round and round, circumambulating this cherry tree, and scattering his ashes until they were all done. And when we'd finished, I, I looked down at my shoes, my black shoes and black pants, and there was my brother's ashes all over my pants and shoes, clinging to me still. And uh, I just was taken by this. And then she did the most amazing thing, five years old. She leaned down to my shoes and she drew a heart on each shoe in the ashes. Yeah. And she did something amazing. She drew them upside down so the hearts were facing me. It's a gift to me. 
cultivate don't know mind. Don't know mind. We don't know who our teachers are going to be. They might be five years old. We don't know. We don't know when this dying stuff is going to happen for us or for those we love. And we cultivate don't know mind. And we, that gives us that sense of wonder and openness, receptivity. And, and we enter. And then the situation shows us what to do. Yeah. So these are the precepts that have guided my work for many, many years, guided the work of Zen Hospice now for 25 years. I teach it still in every training, I think. Welcome everything, push away nothing. Bring your whole self to the experience. Don't wait. Find a place of rest right in the middle of things. And cultivate don't know mind. These are the precepts that we've developed to serve people, to be of service. But I think, you know, I think they have application to other to our everyday life, yeah? to our walking around everyday life, to how we conduct our relationships with our loved ones, to how we show up at work, how we come to the cushion. Yeah? Imagine if they were our, our practices, you know, when we sat down on the cushion, if we just remembered, welcome everything, push away nothing, no matter what shows up, there's room for it. Bring your whole self to this experience of sitting on the cushion. Don't wait for some other time. You know, find a place of rest right here, in all the chaos, and cultivate on our mind. Yeah. So these are what dying folks taught me, and I think they again have a relevance for our, our everyday lives. Yeah. So I share them with you because I feel it's a responsibility that. Dying people showed me how to do this, and they're my teachers, you know. And, and so I always welcome them into the room when I'm teaching because I feel like uh, they keep me honest. You know? So we have a few minutes, not much time, but we have a few minutes. If maybe you have a comment or a question, or <coughs> something you want to share or disagree with, it's fine, you know, it's fine. Can I ask you something? Um, how do you deal with people who have regret at the end of their life? So his question was, how do I deal with people who have regret at the end of their lives? Well, it's a sad thing, you know. My, first, my heart breaks, first of all, that we could come to the end of a life and, and regard it only with regret, you know. So I, I, when I always have great confidence in this, just listening, you know. And I, I really, really work from the perspective that this person knows what they most need. So if I listen with my whole heart, you know, devoutly, really devoutly listen, then it, with that kind of dedication and devout listening, it, it, it has a way of drawing out the truth from people. Yeah? And what they'll find oftentimes is that while there is regret, it's not all there is. Yeah? And it's not that we're trying to be Pollyanna about it. We include the regret. But we recognize that it's not all that's there. Sometimes the regret is calling out for something that needs to happen, a reconciliation or forgiveness that needs to be developed. And maybe we work with that. Work with that you know? But I don't let it scare me off. Because yeah? I know it's not all there is. 
somebody else. Other comments or questions or anything else? There's a woman over there. Will we bring the mic to her? Oh, sure. She's got a mic, and that way others can hear you. Check, check. Um, uh, I'm a hospitalist, and I work at the VA. Oh, good for you. So oh, I at the VA in San Francisco? Yeah. Oh, I love the VA. Uh, me too. Yeah, me too. Um, Marion Johnson used to be there. Was she, did you work with her? I didn't, unfortunately. Uh-huh. She was a dear friend. She was who we started the hospice at Laguna Honda. Okay, yeah. Okay, um, so... So I also do hospice care, um, oh, mostly actively dying patients in the hospital. Um, and one of the things that I think is I've learned in those deaths and caring for those patients, uh, and especially the marginalized population, is it's. It, I feel like nobody should die alone. Yeah. And we get a lot of these patients who come in and have no family and have yeah. no friends. Yeah. Um, and I think there's very much a, a quality of sort of being with. Yeah. That is valuable to the patients, and I think sometimes valuable to myself or sure. all of the caregivers, sure. um, helping these patients die, hopefully as good a death as they can have. So I think in general, this is a beautiful thing, and it sounds as if your motivations are clear, and you're not trying to impose something on people. You're really trying to serve them and accompany them. And I think in most, in probably 99% of the cases, that's really useful, as long as we keep our minds and hearts open to the possibility when that isn't right. Yes, and I've right. encountered those cases too. And those are hard. Well, they're hard for us because yes. we think people shouldn't die alone. Welcoming everything and pushing away nothing means it's all there. We had a guy at the, at the hospice who, uh, when I asked him, how do you want to die, he said, alone. I said, you sure? Yeah, and we'd have several conversations about it. But when he was dying, I put a sign in his room, you know, John's room, leave him alone. You know, and people were furious at me. They were, how can you let that happen? But you know, this is really what he needed. You know, and partly, he he had a fear of being interfered with. Yeah. So both are, both are fine, right? Both are fine. Um, um, it is often true that a lot of people in this country are dying apart from their loved ones or, or their families or anticipate what we would imagine would be their loved ones. And they sometimes die in the company of people who would, like yourself, who might be considered strangers, but sometimes they're the best people for them to die. In the, yeah, die and with. I don't consider that alone. Yeah. No, that's not alone. Yes. Not at all. That exactly. They're accompanied by you. So, so it, is a, it is a truism that, you know, it's an expression we use, I should say. People shouldn't die alone. And, you know, like all cliches, it has um, truth in it, but it isn't the whole truth. And so we have to really be open to the whole truth, whatever's here. Thanks very much, and thanks for the work you do. Yeah. Let's go to this guy. So much has been spoken in popular culture about the gruesome side, the fearsome side of death. And I just want to just appreciate and acknowledge how you've brought forth the soulful side of mm. this and integrating it into our life, yeah. life experience, yeah. and using it to sweeten and enrich our, our present experience. Yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah. And the, the question that I just wanted to put forward is, um, in your experience, what dies? <laughs> uh. Something we can't describe. And we certainly can't answer in a few minutes. But, you know, some of what dies is our idea of the person. And, you know, when, when someone we love dies, 
And we don't just lose them and their body. We, we lose the role they played in our life. Yeah? So like when, you're, when your wife dies, maybe she was the one that did all the finances. Or, or she was the one that hammered out the arguments with the kids. Or cut the lawn, you know? And so anytime you have to then do those things, you lose her again. Yeah? You lose her again. When you get into bed and it's cold, you lose her again. Yeah? So we lose on that level. And it's not a, a single event, it's an ongoing experience until there's a way in which we can finally integrate that loss and carry that person internally in our lives. So that, we have that level of experience, yes. And there's another level of experience in which, you know, when people die, they, they seem to have three big fears. And the first of those is that it will hurt. So we can do something about that. Great hospitalists can manage people's pain and take care of their symptoms. So that's, we can do something. The second is that there's a fear that I will be emotionally abandoned because there's no future in a relationship with me. And so we can do something about that. You know, we can, we can say, I'll be here. You know? does matter to me. No matter how much you're here, I'll be here. Yeah? So we can do something about that. But the, the third is more difficult and hard to address. And that is that all the ways I've defined myself, I'm a father, I'm a mother, I'm a Buddhist, these are all stripped away by illness. Well, an, and, or given up gracefully. But they all go. And then who are we? And so who are we in any moment? beyond our definitions of ourselves, the roles that we play, the stories we tell about ourselves. Who are we? Yeah. I, I would suggest to you that that doesn't die. Anything else? This is woman in front here, and then, then we'll go to you. Right here in front. I uh, have a few more minutes. Have you ever seen spirits of people leave their bodies? Spirits of people leave their bodies. Uh, not sort of see them, you know, like you, like you see in the movies, you know, or, or uh, you know, a Demi Moore movie or something. <laughs> but uh, I certainly have a feeling of presence and, and, and consciousness uh, uh, changing its appearance. A better way to say it, yeah, changing its appearance. So, do any of these people come to you in your dreams? Have you ever yeah. experienced their spirits coming back to you? Well, dreams are a funny thing, right? One, one understanding of dreams is it's just our unconscious emerging constantly. The shamans and Michael Harner and friends, they have different things to say about this. When I was sick, uh, after my heart attacks, um, there was a period of about two and a half months when every night I dreamt about a patient, every night. And uh, some of them came and they just came to say thank you. And some came to give me advice, you know. And some came just to keep me company, it seemed. That's how I understood the dreams, you know. They were dreams. I didn't feel like they were physically in the room with me or nothing woo-woo was happening, you know. But uh, I certainly felt, and, and I certainly feel still, their presence in my life. This is so with anybody that you have an intimate experience with, you know. The intimacy continues even after death. Yeah. The relationship continues, right? Even when someone dies. Like my mother and I are still working out stuff. <laughs> you know, it was a long time ago. Yeah? 
And the relationship continues. Yeah. There was a woman over here that had something. Yeah. Hang on, she'll get you a mic and then we can hear you. I just want to say that as a caregiver, um, that one becomes more of an example for families. Mm. Families look at you and things change mm. at the moment. Mm. I've had three big experiences. Mm. One of them was in a hospital. The family was sitting far away from mm. the patient in a circle. And the patient was in the center. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was far away. It's like yeah. maybe you were there and we were sitting around yeah. you back here. And I thought this was really strange. So at one moment, even the husband was there and he was sitting back there too. And um, I was sitting back there too. Mm -hmm. And so when the family left, they took a break. I went up to the patient and started talking to her. She's dying. She was a young lady. Mm -hmm. And his, her husband came in. And he saw me there talking mm. to her. Mm. And he came up to her and started talking to her. Yeah. Good and for I you. was like, wow. <laughs> and I, at the same time, I, was, I had my hand on her pulse. Yeah. And as he was talking to her, he started crying. Uh -huh. He started telling her how um, they were okay yeah. as a family. The children were young. Yeah. And that they're going to be fine. Yeah. They're okay. Good. You may go. Good. You may go. Yeah. Would you believe it? Yeah. Her so, heart rate went away yeah. right when I was holding her. Oh, it. when you were holding her? Oh, yeah. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. And I thought, wow. Anyway, I had other experiences like that, too, but that is one big So one. it's beautiful that you did that. You know, first of all, people, when I walk into a room where someone's dying, I make a certain assumption. It can be incorrect, but I make the assumption everybody in the room is suffering in some way. Yeah? Usually that's what's going on. The, not just the dying patient, the family is suffering, too. And so there's just different faces of suffering. So my work is not just to be with a dying person, but to meet whatever face of suffering is in the room, yeah? And, you know, so I have to understand that everybody has their way. And I so trust the dying process. I really trust it, you know? I trust it to do its work. And sometimes, as you did so beautifully, we can be, as you put it, an example or a model of what's possible. You know, sometimes people just don't know what to do. You know, we, we're not familiar with this. We haven't, no one taught us how to do this. Maybe your mom did, yeah? So then we can just do something simple, just in, and you know, not without any instruction, without any force, just by being a simple model, just by being a little f not so afraid. Yeah? This is a great gift, to not give fear. This is, a great, this is the best gift we can give at the time of night, to not give fear. Yeah? That's a great gift, so thank you for doing that. It taught me, it taught me a big lesson, how moving that was when yeah. I felt no pulse. Yeah. I thought, yeah. wow, I've just... Yeah, How, what a gift for someone like to miracle. die, knowing that they're loved. It's a rare thing. Ah, yes, uh, this gentleman, and then I have to be...
careful. This may have to may have to be the last one. Go ahead. So you mentioned to not give fear. You know, I'm reminded of fierce grace. Yeah. When uh, you know Ramdas had a response that yeah. was uh, inconsistent with what he believed yeah. it would be like for him. <laughs> and yeah. uh, you know, I wonder if you can comment about that and the, the fear and the, whether it's denial or whether it's you know, oh the, the whole. It's a large subject. Really, well, I guess, yeah, and, and I can't speak for Ramdas, although he's a dear friend, and, and, mm -hmm. and we teach together, and he's on our faculty at Metta. So, and I've talked to him about this a lot, you know. And he, what he's referring to is, you know, in fact, Jack and I were just talking about this last week. Um, there's a, you know, Ramdas imagined that what his dying would include would be his guru would be there and he would be well loved and cared for and, and, and stuff. But he said, you know, when he was rolling through the hospital, all he saw was the pipes. And he said, I've, but he says now, he said, I've failed three or four times in, in trying to consciously die. I've failed miserably. <laughs> and, and the beautiful thing, if you know Ramdas over the years, is that his best teachings have always been about his failures. Exposing his failures to the world has been his great teaching, greatest teaching, you know, his mistakes. So um, I don't think there's any particular one way to die. I don't have much truck for this notion of the good death, you know. I find that these are usually ideas that a lot of people have for dying people. That creates a tremendous amount of pressure on the person who's dying. Uh, I'm more interested in letting people die the way they need to die and accompanying them, yeah. I have some confidence in this, yeah. So, um, you know, denial is a big uh, subject, and it's, that's a whole other day of teaching. But and the one thing I can say about it is that one way to understand denial is just, I'm just not ready to include this yet. And when you hear it that way, it doesn't sound like it's a big bad thing, huh? It just says, I'm not ready to include this yet. And, and that's okay. That's all right. And, and we can just meet that with kindness, can't we? Yeah? Without trying to talk somebody out of it or get them to acceptance. Yeah? I mean, I've been with some hospices and they, they have those five... You know, I, Elizabeth Cooper-Ross was one of my mentors. I studied closely with her. And I know those five stages really well. She taught them to me. But you know, she never meant them to be a, a scorecard. You know? And so people sometimes have this idea that, oh, I've got to get them to acceptance and then, then it'll be good. Acceptance is just the beginning. Acceptance is just the beginning. Now, my marriage falls apart, and I can accept that it's fallen apart. It doesn't mean I'm happy about it. Acceptance is still me accepting something. There are appreciably deeper dimensions of dying than acceptance. After acceptance often arises something like chaos, when the sense of self is breaking down and the definitions are falling away. There's a kind of chaos that's there. And this chaos gives rise to a much deeper dimension, which is surrender. And surrender isn't so much a choice. It isn't something I do. It's not something I, that takes hold of me, you know, like an undertow or a karmic thread. Or, you know, and, and, and surrender is, is supported by faith, by trust, but also by exhaustion. And people surrender in exhaustion sometimes. And then after surrender, then comes the possibility for more transformative experiences, transpersonal dimensions of, of dying. And that's a whole other talk. Yeah? But, um, so I don't, um, I feel it's my responsibility to show people the door and to say, there it is. You can go through that door. Like, 
But it's not my idea. To, it's not, I don't think they have to go through. If they want to watch the Wheel of Fortune on TV, I'm very good at the puzzles. Yeah? It's okay with me. And um, I find that when I'm willing to sit with people, no matter what's going on, what happens is they start to trust. You know, we have this idea that we should make people feel safe, that there's no danger. And that's good if you can do it, but dying doesn't feel safe to people. But what I find is when I'm really residing in my compassionate heart, when I'm genuinely present, not trying to look present, but really genuinely present, then what I find is that people are willing to go to places that seem really dangerous to them. Not because there's no danger, but because they're accompanied. So, compassionate, to be a compassionate companion is to do this, to really trust. All right, we have to stop because it's late, but um, I'll tell you a couple of things. One is, um, because people always tell me, uh, the Metta Institute, if you want to know about the Metta Institute, M-E-T-T-A Institute, you can look it up online, you can find out about our courses and you can come and do that. The Heavenly Messenger program that we teach here at Spear Rock is now is closed. We're in the second of five retreats. It's a two-year program, but we fully intend to do it again. So come back and study with us. Yeah. And, um, and thank you. Thank you for your interest, your sincerity. You know, we turn toward this thing tonight, right? We turn toward this thing of dying that the whole world is running away from. And for some reason, all of us got here tonight and we turned toward it. And that's a wonderful thing, you know. The world needs more of that. And uh, I want to admire you and thank you for your willingness to turn toward that. Yeah? That's a good thing. Yeah? So we did good work tonight. Let's sit together for one minute together, okay? If there's any merit or blessings that might come to us from our understanding and our, our discovery here this evening, uh, I'd like to suggest that we give it away freely in all directions so that it can go out over the world and touch those who need it most, you know. So any blessings that have come to us, can we give them away? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.